Hey y'all, before you start this episode, just wanted to let everyone know that there's some mild swearing and some pretty serious topics discussed in this episode. And it's also important to note that most of the people here were white and femme-identifying. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Akshaya. I'm McKenna. Natalie. I'm Sarah. Welcome to the Teen's Age podcast, where we talk about our opinions and interests. This is my first panel episode, and I'm going to be talking with a few people about feminism. My starting off question is, you know, a little bit more basic. What does the word feminist or feminism mean to you? Um, I think there's a widespread notion that, you know, feminism has really become something that people fit to their own definitions. Um, And it can be used both to weaponize it and both to use it as a shield. And I think that's something that's, you know, important about the word, that it's been shifted throughout the centuries. You know, we used feminism in the 1920s usually to talk about equal equality between the genders, but primarily focusing on white women, not women of color. And I think we're seeing this kind of shift on feminism being used, at least for me personally, it's about equality between the genders for all people of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I, uh, It's definitely, it's something that you hear a ton, especially if you're more involved in politics, like I think a majority of us are. Um, It's kind of funny because the first time I heard feminism was uh, in sixth grade and I was talking with a guy and he told me that uh, he he mentioned feminism and I was like, what the hell is that? Because I was a sheltered child. And he told me that it was basically the opposite of what it was he said it was a movement to make women superior to men in every way and which is strange that that was my that was the first ever time I heard that word but um I mean now I know better I just I think it's very strange when Akshay mentioned it being demonized that the first ever time I heard about it was it being demonized um so I wrote an essay about this and so like an entire paragraph was just about this one question that's um, so great. But I think that uh, with feminism, it's kind of confusing because like it does sound feminine, you know, but in reality, it's about fighting for women and men's rights. Like some of the most like feminist icons, like they fought for men to be able to like have a fair hearing when like they're trying to get custody of their child. Um, so I think I had a similar situation the first time I really uh, heard about feminism with, with anybody else was um, also from a guy in my class who told me never to become a feminist because they were all there because they all hated men. And so I was like, oh, interesting. Did we meet the same guy? <laughs> Probably. So the next question I had was what feminist issues uh, should everyone be involved in or paying attention to right now? Like in your personal opinion and like what's important to you? Well, obviously there's the, um, this, this is a feminist issue, right? The whole, uh, the constant war for um, abortion rights in the U.S. specifically is what I've been following. I know it's other places too. Uh, yeah, the 
in, ter in line with that following the Supreme Court nomination currently. Mm. Those are my main two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, abortion is the thing that I think feminism is most known for, uh, other than wage gap uh, issues. I think, sorry, I think that's like a doubled ed a double-edged sword in some ways, that feminism is known for it. Because I think, I think there's kind of a misconception about abortion itself. And there's a lot, I think RBG, who recently passed, um, sorry, um, she talked about Roe v. Wade and she said she disliked the ruling. Like she wasn't against abortion. She was, you know, a pretty well-known feminist icon. She was against the way the ruling was ruled because it was talking about privacy. It was focused on the Fourth Amendment, which was about privacy. And she wanted it to be focused on, you know, allowing women to make the choice about their own bodies, not about privacy. And so because of that ruling, because it was kind of steamrolled a little bit instead of allowing more gradual societal change, I think we kind of saw that a little bit more with like same-sex marriage. There's a whole lot more of like acceptance around that. And of course, there are a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of homophobia that's still around and still sucks a lot. But I think we've seen a majority of Americans at least accept that same-sex marriage is here to stay, right? And that it's not like a sin, right? And I don't think we've seen that kind of gradual societal shift with abortion. And I think that's really important that we see it and we find ways to kind of create a gradual, a gradual change of how people view abortion, because that's also so fundamental to fem feminism, going off of what Sarah's point is, right? Because abortion is like, when you think of feminism, you think of abortion and you think of the abortion argument, right? And that's such a controversial object right now. I think honestly, for me, the main issues in feminism that I focused about were in terms of women in business, because we see this huge gap in how women are treated professionally in the real world, right? We're seeing that not only are you know, white women being paid less than white men. We're seeing this also of women of color, primarily black women. There is a steep, steep wage gap between them and white men. And I think additionally, another huge point of feminism that needs to focus, that we need to focus on today is feminism's involvement of women of color. Because I think we're at least seeing like a shift in how we approach things that include women of color that haven't always been part of the argument, that haven't always been part of the discussion. If you want someone to talk about women in the workplace, especially like big workplaces, like uh, I should introduce you to my mother. She would, <laughs> she gives actual talks about stuff like this at her work. I'm sure she would love to rant to you all. <laughs> I think that another really big feminist issue right now is child marriages because like the majority of them are forced unfortunately which goes in hand with like the big problem with like assaults because currently one in five women in America I always use this stat but um have been like sexually assaulted in their lifetime and <laughs> when you're forced into a marriage with what's most likely going to be a grown man and a young like girl it's, it's gonna happen and it's like legal in the majority of states. And there's no specified age most of the time. Yeah. Not always, but.
Yeah, absolutely. I think to go off of like the kind of blending that's been happening with feminism and other causes, like I feel like feminism has kind of reached out to like a lot of different places and it's a lot more encompassing now. My school has a club called Intersectional Feminist Club and like I think there's a lot of feminism to do with Black Lives Matter and just so much stuff that's relevant right now. So I was wondering like how you integrate intersectionality into feminist action. Like how do you avoid whitewashing of feminist groups, queer and disabled exclusion, etc. And how do you attempt to include those feeling alienized in discussions on politics or feminism? I think there's also a lot of like men can't be feminists and some other things that are barriers that second wave feminism and such have like had up for a while. And how do you guys like try and combat that? Um, I think that anybody can be a feminist and that it's a good thing that men out and other people out there are feminists too. And I think that's really important to include a lot of other people, not just women, in the discussion of feminism because it truly does affect everybody of all genders. I think there's kind of a misconception on who feminism is for, right? And while I don't deny that it's been used to empower women for centuries and it's been used in positive ways for women, it's also not just about women. It's about people of all genders. And I think you see feminists, (laughs) JK Rowling, um, trying to limit feminism's use as just like woman only and trying to gatekeep that. No, I think feminism can be for men. It can be to show that toxic masculinity is a real thing and that it leads to higher suicide rates among men. And this statistic, which is repeatedly quoted back to me by men who saying feminism is you know, not good and it's man-hating because it's not about men and it's only about women. It's true, it should not only be about women, but I would push back at them and say, feminism is defined by being, by being a notion that ensures equality for all genders, right? Not just women. So yes, I think we feminism needs to talk about these statistics for men. It needs to talk about these gender roles, negative effects on men, on non-binary folks, on gender fluid folks, right? Because all of these genders are part of the conversation about feminism. I think this kind of misconception that has filtered through, I think, the feminist community as well, is that it's for women and it's by women. And it kind of, on a shallower extent, you certainly see people saying that it's for white women and by white women, right? So you need to re-educate yourself a little bit on the history of feminism and you have to reassess a little bit feminism's value to people of all genders. Definitely. Gatekeeping is one of the worst things that humanity has created. Not just feminism, everywhere. I hate gatekeeping with a passion. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, if you believe in equality, you're a feminist, but I feel like so many people are like, reluctant so like take that name take that title but like I was talking about feminism and they said one of the reasons they didn't believe it was because there were more women enrolled in some colleges than men and so they're taking away the spots when you look at it they're actually more women than men on the earth today so it's like and plus go back a couple years when there were men totally like (laughs) colleges were like almost all men so, I don't know, it's just frustrating because, like, they think that it's white women that hate men. 
but it's not. It's everybody that loves everybody. It wants to support and bring up everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. And I'm really glad to have really great friends who like honestly do believe that. There's also been a lot more conversation around inclusion like that. And I think like as a non-binary person who is AFAB, like I think it's really great to like hear things like in conversations about abortion instead of just saying for women for like you know people who can have babies who yeah like because also some women can't have children like I think it's a very it's a discussion that's kind of becoming more deep and interesting uh, as I follow along my next question was while I was looking for questions for this panel uh, I was looking at a search related to mine, uh, what are the most Googled questions about feminism? And a lot of them were very simple things, like what do feminists fight for? Do feminists have to be women? Why do feminists not shave, etc. cetera? Uh, <laughs> was that the actual third top question? I need to know, Alex. <laughs> I think it was fifth, but it was real close. And I don't like, like, why is that the most relevant thing? This is gonna get unexpectedly deep, but I think that's kind of touching on this so-called like, Feminists are always masculine, and masculine is the only way to be valued by society. I can rant about this because in middle school, I was doing everything I could to never be mistaken as feminine. Like, I would do everything I could about my appearance, about how I acted, that would be referred to as masculine. Because I saw it as better to be overly masculine than to be even a hint of feminine. And that sucked because society inherently devalues feminine and being feminine. And that's certainly a part of the discussion about feminism. Um, also, do feminists shave their legs? Um, not, I don't shave my legs in winter, guys. I'm not wearing shorts in the freezing cold. Why would I do that? Sometimes, sure, I like, they, they're like kind of smooth. So they feel kind of nice. It's just a lot of effort. And so I don't want to do it in winter for like no reason. Oh, that's my honest answer. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, Sorry. I don't shave because I am ginger and literally I don't have a fucking problem with it. I don't have eyebrows. There's no problem with any leg hair for me. So I remember in middle school, okay, I was low-key like a picking girl. Like, okay, it was like, I'm not a feminist. Feminists are gross. Like, I don't know. I like kind of hated on girls that wear makeup. I'm like, look at me now. <laughs> I have an issue. <laughs> but, um, and... Yeah, I think it's such, such such a problem because people look at like being feminism because feminism, being feminine as a weakness. But it's honestly like kind of a strength if you can like, because like look at AOC, like she wears full red lipstick and she's a boss. <laughs> I don't know because uh, yeah, it's such a problem. I'm yeah. the shaving thing. I have blonde hair, so not a problem here. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, like, my main question with that one was, like, those questions seem really rudimentary, and feminism has been around for a really long time, and it's been in the public eye for a while, at least in modern era, and it weirds me out that people don't have the seemingly basic understanding of not all feminists don't shave and other things like that. It seems like the questions that would be top for feminist ideals would be a little bit more complex and nuanced. Why do you think they aren't? Why do you think they're so basic? I'm gonna go back to my point of feminism always shifting, right? We see this like shift of feminism and what it means 
throughout like the 20th century and going into the 21st. And I think additionally, there's also a lot of misconceptions about feminism that have been started ever since the like 1900s. Like women, if they wanted to bike to work, they'd be like, oh, the bike is bad for them because of their reproductive organs. It's not going to work out. No, women can bike, guys. Like at first, it seems like a stupid question, right? It's like, why would you, why would you even ask this? But I think it just comes to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions on both sides of the spectrum. And there's a lot of ways where it's easy for us to just stay in our bubble, right? It's easy for me to like be like condemning all people who are even leaning conservative to being super stupid about everything, right? Like, obviously I'm gonna think they're, I'm gonna think like I disagree very heavily on some things. Maybe we can compromise on other things, I don't know. But if I keep myself trapped in that bubble, like I think some people are doing about feminism, I'm never going to actually learn about it. I'm going to learn that feminism is about hating men, right? And it's only for women. And I'm going to just believe that. And I'm not going to do any more research, right? Like it's, I think it's hard to reach out to people who already have a set definition in their mind and they're not so easily shifted away from it. I definitely think the reason that simple questions, I'm, I'm, I'm piggybacking mostly off of the why don't they shave question. It's, I think it's really subtle attempted demonization because, you know, it's, you have the, um, you have the set like women, like what a woman is and people feel threatened that that idea of womanhood is going to be destroyed by feminism. So they're taking like little things that you would just attach to women, whether they're stereotypes or not and they're they're using like like you know if a woman doesn't shave she's like people might think that's bad so they're using that to kind of um I don't know I had a point in this I'm really thinking that it's mostly like it's small things it's focusing on little sexist stereotypes that could be used to bring down the movement like the whole thing with Akshaya like it's been going on for a while and like the whole reproductive thing. There are, um, there are posters from like the 1920s of like anti um, woman's right to vote posters showing like the woman like throwing her child out a window because it was the idea that <laughs> feminism would destroy air quotes here. Like, what makes a woman so what makes a woman in this case shaving well feminists don't shave yeah go sorry going back to what you said earlier i think that the left is a really big like superiority problem like we're not willing to reach out to the side of the aisle because they're like they're dumb they'll never get it but they really have a completely different definition of what feminism is so if you explain like that's what you heard but this is what i believe that can be like really helpful, but if you're not willing to reach out in the first place, then that will never happen. I think um, a big reason that many people don't know what feminism is, especially I was I'm thinking about um, me because I definitely learned that feminism was pretty late, I guess. Um, but I think it's because a lot of people don't really take the time to look like look into it. You just believe what you hear, like thinking about conversations I've had people in the past. And 
um, I think that um, feminism especially, there's like a lot of stuff that goes into it, a lot of stuff that's talked about. Um, and a lot of people think that like, you know, they don't agree with like one certain thing, or, like they don't completely understand the entire picture. And then they're like, well, I could be a feminist then. Cause like you can. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's um, this really focused narrative on making sure that feminism is distasteful and that will like deter people from further looking. Like, I don't think people dive deeply unless they're really interested in something right now because of how much information is available at everyone's fingertips. Uh, you really have to choose. And I think when you hear like the kind of I don't want to say like lore, but the mythology around like what a feminist is and um, those kind of thoughts just deter you from looking into it. Uh, we all remember the non-binary penguins segment from that one thing that was about like, if we don't have the gender status, then the family falls apart. It, like it's a very similar And who do we rely like, on? When you the create... government. That's what the, the liberals- right? <laughs> that video, I, that video plays in my head before I fall asleep every night. It's so funny. I was about to joke about like um, the reason like the whole thing, it's like subtle. Um, like fear mongering, and then you said that, which is just like blatant fear mongering. <laughs> right. But because it's grown over time with like things from like if we have transgender people, then the gender binary is broken down and blah, 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 and then we rely on the government. How does that connect, right? Everyone in the government is transgender and they want us all to be under their wing. <laughs> doing Fox News's work for them. What's really scary about it is that, like, such a simple thing of, of like, do feminists actually not shave will go from that to, like, an actual hatred and thinking of feminists as something, like, other and, like, Evens and like something to be defeated and not just people with you know a view on equality between the genders like I feel like that kind of fear-mongering begins subtly certainly and then it just builds and builds and builds into something that like doesn't even seem like you know it could have come from that original source yeah I think there's a big problem with like because there are some like really bad people that are labeled as feminists. So like um, one lady, I think her name was Valerie Solanitz, and she basically, she shot Andy Warhol after he wouldn't produce her play about how much she hated men. And she was like, people were like, oh, this feminist, she's crazy. She wrote a manifesto about how much she wants to just kill men. <laughs> and that was what feminists were looked at like for a long time. She was like trying to recruit people, calling them feminists. It was bad. Um, I think there's definitely a big stereotype when it comes to feminists and like the thinking of hating men. But those people really aren't feminists because feminists. I think feminism is exact. It's for all genders, and so you can't hate men. That's not a feminist thing. It's just a stereotype that men made to like label us as something bad. I mean, there's the whole thing. It's a movement. It's a large movement. There's bound to be differences in it between different uh, people who are high up. And it's just, 
it sucks that there's people who would immediately like jump on one bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I also came across in my searches like a lot, a lot of news articles claiming that interviews with feminist folks have been radically left wing. I have read the words leftist dogma. I have read things saying that the intentions of said panels are sinister because some of its contributors implied men are toxic. Everyone say thank you, Alex, have- for going through this to set up this panel. We need to be like, Uh, But they've also said that the panels and the talks with feminist leaders have incited political violence and such things. There was no evidence to back these claims, but basically I can look at your faces and I can tell like this is something you might have come across in your political conversations and your feminist conversations with people. And I was wondering like, if you avoid tangling human rights things, uh, feminist and gender equality topics with politics, do you avoid mixing them together? Do you actively open your arms to like, these are very similar things and they relate to each other? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, listen, feminism and politics certainly like, they're about, Okay, they're not about two completely different things, but they're two very different words. Feminism is about a belief that all genders are equal. And politics is about, I don't even know how I could describe it right now, but it's it's intentionally supposed to be like a civil discourse on, you know, how we change legal stature, legislation to better our country, right? And to carry out the constitution. And certainly feminism affects politics, right? It, it does, it definitely does, right? Because it's part of your inherent belief that all genders are equal, right? And that affects policy, that affects how you view politics. I'm not arguing with that. <laughs> but to imply that feminism is the root cause of violence from politics, I mean, that sounds insane. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is insane because nothing in, Feminism's belief cites any relation to violence. It is literally defined as equality between all genders. If you look at something that is inherently more violent, like white supremacy, there is violence within that term. There's an obvious belief, right, in that one person, one race is superior and another is inferior, and that therefore an action must be taken to create that shift in society. Feminism has none of those things. It does not imply violence in any way. It does not ever, ever signify that there is enemy. There's an enemy of the state. There's an enemy of people who are feminists, right? And so to blame feminism on that violence, I think is not a rational way to approach it. Certainly to say that, you know, this person identified themselves as feminist and took this action It has to be talked about in the feminist community. We need to talk about how this is not actually feminism. This is a misunderstanding of the term. This is a completely different term, right? Uh, But I think, you know, media and social media certainly plays a role in how people are informed of these events and how they view them. So in reality, I think, you know, social media has a little bit more of an impact on if people carry out this violence. 
because that's what empowers them to feel like they can. Demonization. It's, it's just attempting to tear down the entire movement because of one thing or not. Sometimes it's not even one thing. And sometimes it's a misunderstanding or it's something being blown out of proportion. It's, it's frightening. It's frightening how often and honestly, how, how it, how much it's used and how it often achieves things. It's, but yeah, they, it, it's a very common uh, tactic of people who want to tear down movements like feminism, Black Lives Matter, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's just really interesting to me because I believe, like, commonly in our society, we refer to politics as, like, a specific thing. Uh, but, like, in my classrooms, we've often talked about politics as being, like, anything concerning, like, the well-being of citizens and stuff. So it's, like, interesting how complex these terms are and how we kind of try and simplify them and how that, you know, has effects in conversations about it. Um... When I've talked to you all one-on-one, -on -one, we've often talked about the concept of revolution. Not starting one, just thinking about- Yeah, we have. <laughs> just thinking about the idea of revolution, uh, especially in relation to our country's founding. It's interestingly paradoxical. Specifically in a group chat on politics, I remember debating with some people on the meaning of revolution and what our responsibilities as citizens in the US are. What do you think those are? And do you think it's the public's job as a democracy to revolt when the government is being unjust? I mean, I think it is, but at the same time, everybody's definition of unjust is gonna be different, like depending on our political views or some bad, but how we think of human rights. Do, okay, do I think it is the people's responsibility to revolt if a government is unjust? I don't think that, I think that revolution can be defined in different ways. I think certainly there is an implication of violence when you talk about revolt. Do I support and condone violence? No, definitely not. I can understand if something becomes so unjust that it is, you know, completely stifling the freedoms that are promised in the US Constitution, why violence would emerge from that? But do I think it is the people's responsibility to revolt in a violent way? I don't think that that should be a responsibility. I don't think that, I think that your responsibility to revolt happens when there is a widespread understanding that what the government doing is doing is unjust, right? And it should first be attempted through change, legal change, institutional change, that is not re requiring violence, right? It should be doing by encouraging people to vote. It should be done by encouraging people to run for offices. It should be done through, you know, through the system. And I think there's a widespread view of that, right? Like some people want to change the system through the system. And some people want to completely take apart the system. And both are valid, but I think the way you approach it is different, right? Like if you want to approach it with violence or if you want to approach it with, you know, I don't, I, I like just, I, I, I lost my words, but I think there's a difference between that. And I think certainly it is your responsibility to revolt 
in a way that is not violent, but intellectually, that is civil engagement, if you feel the government is unjust. That is important. That is your responsibility as a citizen of the United States. Do I think it is your responsibility to revolt in result of violence? No. I think that you should try and not resort to violence. I think that that can seriously undermine a movement and that can seriously undermine your cause if you resort to violence. That got serious quick, guys. <laughs> nah, it's okay. It's just that's such an interesting topic that, you know, I've had I've had discussions with people about. Because personally, I'm a very uh, I like I like change. I think that it's good to try and do things peacefully, try and change things through a system. I do believe though, if a system in and of itself is resistant to change, uh you can't do much if the system is designed to stay as it is. I think, oh gosh, the original, yeah, the responsibilities and stuff about revolution, I think that everyone should try. And obviously people want to fight for their rights in different ways. And I do think that it's an unfortunate thing that if that there is a correct way to protest, and there is a correct way to see change because sometimes that correct way doesn't always work. And that, I mean, you saw this with, you've seen this in protests before. It's like, this is not the way. It's like, well, what is the way? We've been doing this forever and it's not changing. I'm, I'm a very, uh, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to say something <laughs> that, that criminalizes me. It's just, I don't think, that if you if it's been going so long that democracy was created so that people can have a voice and if it's been slowly taking our voice away sometimes we have to tear it back at some point or we're gonna lose any chance we have to tear it back at the fbi please don't come and get me i i think there's certainly a difference between you know in ideology, there's a difference between people who want to work change through the system, you know, or people who just don't want the system to change, or people who want to undo the system and then rebuild it. And I think you're seeing that wide spectrum of, you know, ideology play out today. I think certainly that we're going to see the impact and implication of that in, you know, the local, state level, and national elections we're going to have. But I think there's also like a completely different talk of, especially when with people who have the ideology of completely rebuilding the system, there's both the side of that, which is, you know, you do it peacefully through protest, right? And then there are certainly some people who feel that violence is the only way that they can get their voices heard. And the really sad part about that is like, in a way, it can be said that they're right, because we saw Black Lives Matter only get the media attention when a few people started rioting, when we saw violence spark out between, you know, counter protesters or uh, against the movement or between, you know, police officers and protesters. And that's when it got media attention. Well, and it only started when we had like physical, like video evidence of actual like dehumanizing violence. Then. I think, right. We've seen multiple videos of George Floyd before. 
there are tons of videos that were released in 2019. There are tons of videos in 2018, but we didn't see this change. And that's a huge question. Like, why didn't we see this change, right? And that's a complex question. And this is completely not related to feminism. Well, it kind of is, but not directly. And the fact is that we reached as, well, the black community reached a tipping point, right? And I think we see a lot of other Americans kind of reach this tipping point when we see this video, this <laughs> lynching caught on camera and shown on national television. And I think, I think America and the black community hit a tipping point that really launched this, that really brought us back to kind of this feel of a movement. And then it, like media, of course, had a field day when violence started breaking out. And then after the violence was over, media kind of sputtered out, like it just went away, right? So violence is not something I condone. And it's a sad reality that people feel like, you know, they need to use violence because otherwise their voices aren't gonna be heard, right? And that's something we need to work on as a nation. Yeah, for sure. It's very, why, why are we, why are the protesters expected to be peaceful and ask for things when the people we're fighting against are not giving us that luxury? This isn't a debate. This is police killing people. This is uh, counter-protesters, counter-protesters, like, uh, retaliating with, uh, like, double the force. It's just... Why are we held to this standard when the people that are supposed to protect us are not? Now we're just now we're just getting yeah, into the other sure. stuff. <laughs> the basic thought with the like there's there's people who believe that you can only achieve stuff through violence. Ajoma Lu talks a little bit about that in uh, so you want to talk about race, which I read recently, and she talks a little bit about like the. I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but the difference between what society has posed Malcolm X and Martin Luther King to be. But Martin Luther King was still shot. And, you know, when we talk about peaceful protest, there's like, I forget the name of the football player who kneeled in protest, but like, it's ignored and it's shamed. And so like, what are we to do when stuff like that happens when violence isn't like the only option, but when it's like the only option that gets public attention. But more than that, the thing with MLK and his set of protesters that were very peaceful in the civil rights movement, they faced immense violence. Yeah, and criticism at the time. Like, and we're looking back on it like he was a hotshot. No, he was not. Like everyone, like he was number one criminal for a while. There. Immense violence, both from counter protesters, both from the police, and they they could not lift a finger because they were committed to this peaceful protest idea. I remember Malcolm X was saying like, peaceful protest was basically saying, you know, you can have at me, you can hurt me, and I won't do a thing, right? And Martin Luther King approached it with, you know, greeting hate with love. But that's, that's so like sad in a way, right? Because there's like this impossible standard that when somebody is beating you, you're not gonna do anything to save yourself because that's the message you need to get across. That's the only message you can get across, right? So, sorry, this is like completely different, man. <laughs> 
No, it's it's all part of the conversation. I was going to ask, um, in reference to this kind of violence that we've been seeing a lot of, um, do you feel like it's everyone's responsibility to keep up with the news, especially global news? And this is largely because a lot of people have been taking, you know, social media breaks, internet breaks, because of, like, how overwhelming and violent the news can be. Like, there really has been quite a bit of, like, just... I don't want to say, like, trauma sharing. Like, just some level of, like, this is only here for shock value that uh, people have been turning away from to an extent. Um, And, like, there's also people who just don't get involved in politics. Like, you know, uh, how how do you balance, like, knowing that being on social media and absorbing this, like, kind of negative stuff can be bad for you and also want to keep in the know and you know keep yourself like conscious of the world around you to an extent i'm gonna be real after the first presidential debate even slightly before that i could not get on any news app i have washington post on my phone i have a 45 minute time limit that my parents set on it because i spend way too much time reading the news and stressing about it and I think it is in your good health and it is a good intention to want to take a break. It feels awful. It felt awful for me, right? I watched a part of the presidential debate and I was like, oh God, I'm not reading the news for a solid week. I can't do it. Like everything around me is very overwhelming very negative it feels like you know like i was making fun of it at first like oh my god this is like an snl skit and i was like really intensely sad for a second like america is turning into an snl skit in this time of increased polarization right so i think it's healthy to take a break i haven't been reading the news so much as maybe i did in 2019 (laughs) Because I don't think I can handle it anymore. And I think, you know, staying in the know is important, but only on, you know, things that you know aren't going to, like, make you flip the switch, turn into, like, something super overwhelmed and stressed about the news, about what's going around you, right? So I think it's balancing health, because health is very important, right? When you're reading the news, it can be really hard to keep yourself, you know, feeling not overwhelmed by the amount of like shock factor or negative stories you're hearing. And it's important to say the no, right? So you know at least what's going on, right? I think you you should take breaks, right? But there's a difference between taking a break from reading the news and taking a break completely from civic engagement. I don't do that. And I don't think anybody should. I think that civic engagement is something you should try and participate in as much as you can because it's so important. I think there are ways to participate it, participate in it in a way that's healthy for you. And I think that taking a break from the news because it gets really overwhelming does not excuse the fact that, you know, you aren't going to vote, that you aren't going to, you know, get registered, that you aren't going to stay engaged within your community. I have a little bit of a different perspective just because I haven't actually been on social media since June. 
it's been a while now, but um, one thing for me that I've been really trying to keep up with is like, no, I can't see all of these posts. I can't see what my friends are saying or what the current issues are, but I have a couple podcasts that I just like rotate through. So I'm getting a good amount of media. It's not consuming my life. And like a problem with social media is you're only seeing what you want to see. So it's going to push you to that point where you're just so fed up with the other side you can't even listen to them anymore. And so it's just finding that balance. You feel like restricting your screen time or like if you <laughs> if there's a certain app that you use too much, just like cutting back. Um, yeah, I think I think that I'm not gonna lecture anyone about how they intake news and how much they intake of it. Uh, the way I intake news, this is I don't know if this like lowers your opinion of me, but I intake a lot of my news, probably a majority of it through, I take in a lot of my news through a uh, political satire, namely late night shows, which I know is not the most unbiased thing, but yes, there's something to be said about like, I take my news, but I have to have it wrapped with comedy. Like Ray Bradbury's like rolling over in his grave. <laughs> it's just, um, sure there's that need that I can't I just I don't like reading just news because it's just it's so negative that maybe I want to see people crack jokes I need to know but I don't want to get lost in it so that's the way I take in a lot of my um a lot of news about the current world and like there are some good shows uh daily show last week tonight stuff like that that you can get really good news and it's just not overly depressing which i really enjoy yeah politics is hard because i feel like once you start getting into it you almost feel this like responsibility you're like gotta keep going i have to do something like i need to be doing something or else i'm a, I'm a terrible person but i don't know it's, it's like <laughs> oh it just gets bad sometimes but where's it going with this but yeah that's i mean i think that's totally valid because we all are going to get information from different ways that like help us personally. So, yeah, I definitely go through periods where like for a solid like you know month, month and a half, I'm like reading Washington Post, and then something like really horrible happens. Like September, like when RBG passed, I couldn't read the news for a long, long time especially with like the Supreme Court nominations happening, like I can barely read the news now. So yeah, I think definitely Sarah talking about like wrapping news with comedy, like late night shows, it works for some people and it works for me too. And I think it's just important to train yourself to think about the news in a way that you understand that every news source has its biases that could impact the way that they're presenting it. It's just, you know, making sure you're healthily consuming the news and you're not, you know, overwhelming yourself. I think that's something that's really helped me is to like limit the amount of news I guess that you see especially on social media especially on Instagram there's so many posts all of them are very important but there's a lot of them and I think that definitely taking a step away from all that and focusing on like late night shows or maybe a podcast or like article our actual articles is so much it's so much more better, especially for me, because 
there's not as much of it and it's not always there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, John Oliver has been my family's solvent for a lot of our... I would die for that man. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of our inherently, like, um, really just kind of Welshmert's times. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It's Welsh, so I can't. But um, it's, like, the idea of, like, existential angst. Like, times when it's really easy to lose faith in the U.S. specifically, but also in the world at large. And it's just really great to have a calming English voice tell you everything. A mildly pissed British man who voiced a bird in a Disney movie. I, oh, my family and I, or my dad and I at least, we watch like Stephen Colbert, I think, for late night. He's also really great. He's, he's probably my second favorite. Like one of my favorite late night. Trevor Noah's great. Always. Yeah, I don't watch enough of Trevor Noah, but he's also pretty good. Yeah. The arm I would give to have Jon Stewart have a show every night. (laughs) So, um, along with uh, kind of the idea of social media, um, it's been a great platform for, like, talking on causes like feminism to wider audiences, but this has also opened the door for things like performative action and has almost condensed movements into one week or at most a month or two of flooded media and then never to be heard of again. How do you feel about social media's impact on social movements and feminism in particular? I wrote an essay on this. (laughs) Uh, I can't remember anything I said in it, but... Uh, basically, yeah, the, the condensing of it does allow for performative action, and it's very easy to get a lot of different, um, you know, there's filter bubbles and stuff, and I think social media, again, double-edged sword, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with this. Okay, so... <laughs> Akshay is ready to come in here and like just shove me out of the way and like okay no. I know what to say <laughs> no okay I never actually know what to say I just make it sound like I do okay so recently like as in recently like yesterday <laughs> my family and I watched The Social Dilemma which is on Netflix and it scared me so bad and it's essentially about you know how Silicon Valley has really influenced human behavior through Google through social media particularly, and how that affects in the increasing polarization of our society. It's really good. You should watch it if you haven't yet. Um, And my feelings about social media being used for activism is a couple of things. First of all, if you're trying to use it to encourage a conversation between somebody you know might disagree with you, that's not going to work. Social media will not convince people. It it's really hard for social media to convince people even if you like you know try to get people to like spread it around it's gonna stay within a very specific set of people that already agree with you that already have similar interests in politics or similar interests or beliefs that will see this post and certainly that can be you know great for a movement that wants to have you know some sort of following on social media that they can you know use to you know further their message of whatever they believe in. But I think it can also be really damaging because it doesn't allow for any sort of civil engagement between two people. 
And it also promotes this idea of, you know, at the end of the day, social media and activism, social media has led people to have like completely different set of facts, right? So my set of facts on the coronavirus is very different than somebody on Facebook, you know, who has shown to have believed in conspiracy theories before, and therefore Facebook recommends them to this group of people who believe the coronavirus is like a government sham or conspiracy theory, right? And it allows for people to fall into these deeper rabbit holes, right? And I think using social media for activism can help spread awareness, but it does not help with actual action. It does not help with actual discussion. It does not help with actual action. And it can be very hard for people to, you know, stay with the movement for longer than like, you know, one day of one click of one link, right? We saw this kind of movement with BLM, right? People posting their black squares, right? And it was, uh, it was not a good moment for society. It was, it was not. Um, but I think there was also this kind of normalization of it, which made people think it was okay to post a black square and then do nothing, right? I think there's this kind of normalization of, you know, seeming like you're doing things, seeming like portraying this kind of picture-perfect part of you that engages in, you know, civil discourse. And there's a difference between that and actually engaging in civil discourse. I think social media can make it easier for people to engage in civil discourse, but I think at the same time, it makes it harder, which is like a paradoxical thing to say, but yeah. Yeah, I've had some really great conversations with people that are like, quote, unquote, across the aisle. And it's a little bit of a tangent, but I mean, you're going to see what you want to see. So you just keeps getting more and more like left or right leaning. So I was talking to this one dude, again, tangent, I'm sorry. Um, talking, to this one, <laughs> talking to this one dude and he starts talking about how the government is putting fluoride in the water because it makes men cross us. Getting the freaking frogs getting frog. That's exactly where my mind went. I think you talked with Alex Jones on. But yeah, um, I was literally just trying to have a conversation with him and he brings it up and he's like, it's the Democrats. <laughs> it sucks because it's like funny. At that point you just run. Yeah, I know. It's funny to hear about it. But like when you realize how badly misinformation has spread on social media, it's like genuinely scary. Like, like you're seeing people, you know, who seem like they're super stupid for believing this. But I bet you that I have seen something and not double fact checked it and believed in it when it was actually fake. Like it's super easy. It could happen to any one of us, right? If there's a thousand likes on the picture, on social media and it's you know being sent to us we're like oh well this seems legit so it's like it's yeah yeah, yeah and it no this should definitely be taught in schools right like, you know like not to think everything that you find is legit that's exactly what i'm doing in gpr right now um yeah. i think about social media i think that it's a good place to start it's definitely um brought more attention like for me to certain issues I like never even thought about before but after a while I think you really have to you see the post then look into it on your own if you're actually that interested in it and from 
and from there you build your opinion on it. But I think because there are so many so many posts like that, so much information, and you have I sometimes I know that sometimes I feel like you I have to share it because everybody everybody else is and like how would you know if someone's like actually actually cares or not if they're not like sharing it I think that's kind of a big problem but I feel like it's a it's an all right place to start but I wouldn't base all of your news on it that's for sure um to be completely honest before I like okay I found the feminist page and that's what got me started because before this I was like really conservative um and so I don't know, my research kind of started there, but then it slowly evolved. Like, I found a couple podcasts that were pretty unbiased that I like, and I would just research each individual topic. But I definitely think that social media is a great tool, but you can't solely rely on it, because there's some weird stuff on there. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, there's, like, an evolution from starting on social media. I think I remember, like, finding so many things on social media about like menstrual equity that I didn't know about before because I'd never thought about it. And like, then I got really interested in the issue and I was like, wow, this is really important and impactful. I did not know these statistics, but like the thing is you have to take it beyond that platform. You know, you can't always, and I think about social media, it's about simplifying it so people can just click and access it really easily. So it's great for access and awareness, but it's not really great for like understanding the complexity of the issue. It makes it really easily digestible. Um, and I think that can be really useful, but at the same time, yeah, can lead to a lot of misinformation. So along with that, you all have been or are pretty active on social media about these topics. What would you say to people who have been silent and passive, especially recently with everything happening with Black Lives Matter and other things? I think a lot of people want to stay neutral, but you can't stay neutral. There, like at some point when it's about human rights, there is no neutrality. Like you've chosen the side of the oppressor because you're not going to speak up against it. Being complicit is just feeding into it. Yeah, I understand, you know, I understand like being afraid to post publicly or putting it on your story. I think there's certainly some validity in that, but I think on top of just posting on social media, if you really get involved, there are way other ways that are much more impactful too than just posting on social media. Okay, so like um, a girl put on her story a while ago, I hadn't seen anything from her about like BLM, feminism, and she was like, I've been doing stuff behind the scenes, like, you really don't know what's going on in someone's life. Well, I think that's true. I feel like a lot of people aren't posting because they don't want to, like, lose followers or lose friends. But if you're talking about human rights here, do you really want to be friends with those people? Do you want them in your life and to, like, have that effect on you? I think also, like, just in general, Passivity, especially in today's environment, can be like detrimental to either to both yourself and to society as a whole. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't be moderate. You can't be, you know, moderate about every any of these issues. You have to be completely radical in every way and polarized like society is because society is a monster. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you should try and stay involved because this affects you and it 
it should affect you. And if you have the luxury of saying, I'm going to be complicit, I'm not going to vote because either way, it doesn't really matter to me. You have a luxury in this country. You have a privilege, right? You have a huge privilege, right? Like I know so many people that don't have the luxury of not voting because they are genuinely afraid of the legislation and the impact that the next, you know, not like the next presidential administration is going to have that the next state senator or state governor is going to have, right? And I think this is completely off topic, but you should also bring that energy to local elections. That's really important. Local elections can be hugely impactful, right? And I think, you know, there's a misconception that, you know, you should only vote for the presidential elections because those are the ones that matter the most, right? But actually local elections bear a huge responsibility in your local matters. And they probably, they affect you in huge ways as well. So it's important to stay active in civil engagement either way, right? Yeah, and the, there's also the privilege to choose not to vote when your vote is suppressed or when you um, have been, ha when your vote has been taken away. Um, so I just wanted to add, like, the reason it's so important is because if a, if a it is overturned, it's gonna become a state-by-state -state decision so like, while abortion may be illegal in like Alabama, um, it could still stay legal in Washington depending on who your local like um, government officials are. So vote. Yeah. Other than voting, uh, this is my last one. Uh, what would you say to anyone hoping to get more politically involved but they don't know where to start? Are there some actionable things that they could do? The easiest thing is definitely to just listen to podcasts and research as much as you can, like Wikipedia even, like any article in the news, open the news app. It's the easiest way to start and there's a lot of, there's a lot of unbiased um, sources out there. You can form your own opinions on them. You know, I literally wrote like a huge paragraph on this or like an essay or I don't know. But the thing about change, particularly like for youth activists, for people my age, for me, it can feel very tough to approach change because it seems so monumental, right? It seems like so out of hand, like there is no way I am ever gonna be able to change anything, right? That seems so foreign and so like significant that like there is no way I could do any of that. And I would say there isn't, right? Like you cannot do it by yourself. But there are ways, there are small steps that you can take within your community that can be so impactful to the people around you. I would say if you want to get active with, you know, actually politically active, you should find ways that you can invest in your community, either with your time, you know, with stuff like that, to get to know your community and to help out and to encourage them to vote, to help them with the political process, to engage in local politics that you can access as a youth activist. And doing something seems scary and it seems large and it seems confusing, but I can guarantee you there are ways for you to take small steps towards making a huge change, towards making something that you feel is so important to our country. Um, I would argue that Gen Z is like one of, like if not the most politically active generations, like it's absolutely insane. Everybody you know has 
strong, strong views that they've like researched, they can back up what they believe and just finding ways to help. Like you can't, you can't change public policy, but you can do small things. Like my friend, she wanted to start, she wanted to start something that's called like Color for Change where she sells coloring books and donates the profit. Like my other friend, she started making bracelets to donate that money. Like you can do anything if you really want to. Absolutely. We're kids. We're not dumb. Exactly. Uh, and I think, you know, political engagement can come in like various different ways, right? I think that it could be, you know, actual actions in your community, or it could be, you know, writing about it, talking about it, having this kind of conversation. Congratulations, Alex. You are officially engaging in political discussion and engagement good for you look at that yeah thank you, and thank it, you. yeah it can be simple and even if it's simple it's definitely something to be congratulated on because that is something that is so important to being a citizen of this great american experiment you know political and civil engagement okay hamilton <laughs> Yes, if you if you enjoy Akshaya's speeches, go and listen to her podcast or read her articles. Uh, they are <laughs> she has a blog. It's called Time Turner. I'm just plugging for her. Uh, that's all that's happening. Uh, but yes, yeah, podcast. You get to hear me like just rant. About <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There's like actual good stuff. I, my first ep my first bonus episode was so sad to film. You you can take all of this out, by the way. Just can I just say, like, I my dad and I edited it, edited, edited it. <laughs> and oh dear God, he finished it, and I was like, oh God, that actually is like um emotional. My dad was like, yeah, huh? What the fuck? You want a podcast where you feel like she's gonna crawl through the screen and strangle you? This is the good one. <laughs> You found your source. <sighs> and I mean that in the most loving way possible. Yeah, it was really good. I listened to it and I was like, dang, I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to scare you into civil engagement. Like, I can't do it through love and care. I'll scare you into it, you guys. I'll make you so scared for your lives. Oh, yeah. I'll cry at the screen. I'm too loud. I'm a political friend. I just kept talking to him. So like, um, I basically just bullied him into having beliefs. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad thing to all our uh, to all our listeners over eighteen. If there be any, register to vote. Oh, yes, yes, please. I mean, so I was like, you need to have an opinion on this, and you need to tell me what your opinion is, or yeah, I'm gonna come find you. So, if you don't vote for yourself, vote for others who don't have that power. That was great. Thank you guys so much for participating in civil engagement. Hey folks, you're nearing the end of the podcast. This is a reminder that this month's book is Her Royal Highness by Rachel Hawkins. You know the drill, read along this month to know what we're talking about. You can contact us via email at theteensagepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at teens underscore aged.
Thanks for listening in. This has been the Teens Age Podcast with Alex and Kyler.